Well, I welcome you back for another year of uh, Thursday Bible Studies, sponsored by Northwest Theological Seminary, and we will resume uh, what we interrupted uh, last spring in order to concentrate on Galatians for a while. And we'll pick up with Hebrews chapter 6 this evening, uh, beginning at the 13th verse, although I'm going to include a broader uh, outline paradigm of the structure uh, from chapter 5, verse 10, through chapter 7, verse 1, as you can see from the handout. Let's begin with prayer as we ask the Lord to bless our thinking. Our Father, as we bow before your word, it is as we bow before your own voice. For you are God in heaven and earth, and have spoken to us in such an accommodating way that we might know you in part, we might seek your face by your grace, And we might rest upon your dear Son, whom you have also sent to us to be the very revelation of your image and glory. In this rich part of your word, we are refreshed as we think about these wonderful mysteries that have been transformed, transferred to us by this inspired writer, And so, as you gave him the mind of Christ, you also give us that mind by your Spirit to understand these riches that have been recorded for our salvation. We ask you to bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first thing we want to do is to identify the structural patterns in this unit, which I have uh, described as chapter 5, verse 10, through chapter 7, verse 1. And if you'll take a look at chapter 5, verse 10, and then glance down chapter 6, verse 20. I'd like you to see if you can find some words that are repeated or parallel. And just go ahead and blurt out what you see when you see it. 5, 10, and 6, 20. High priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, and Ben gets the whole enchilada. <clears throat> All right, so in 510, you'll notice the two blanks there. You may fill in high priest, and then the longer blank, uh, order of Melchizedek. And what do you notice, Ben, in 620? Does anybody see that? Mm. Loretta? Yes. 
But thinking about what you already identified in 510, think of what you already identified in 510, and now look at 620. Okay, you wrote in in 510, high priest, okay, in the two blanks, and then in the long blank up at 510 on your outline, you wrote order of Melchizedek. All right, now down in 620, what do you write on the long line? What did you write on the long line in 510? Order of Melchizedek. Notice in 620, order of Melchizedek is first, according to what you identified in 510. Now, what do you see second in 620? Ah, so so your 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 NIV doesn't follow the Greek order. Okay, another problem with the NIV. Mine has, mine has high priest and then No, uh, that is not the pattern of the Greek. What do you have, Ben? Since you don't use the NIV, I hope. The NASB. You have the NASB. So would you tell us what the more proper form following the Greek? Text translation and ASB shows. In 620. In 620. Where Jesus has answered, the No, no, no. Just, just, just. Okay. <laughs> We're looking at the words we found in 510. The high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's in 510. In 620, we have the order of Melchizedek occurring before the term high priest, don't we? Not in mine. Not in yours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then I'm apologizing. Oh, yes. Okay, I see it. All right. Well, the Greek text is actually the reverse. So, okay. All right. New American Standard has it. Pardon? New American Standard has it in 620. It has the, the same sequence as it occurs in 510. Oh, I and so that was the point. Uh, <clears throat> the Greek text places the terms in reverse in 620. And so I apologize for pressing you to see something that you couldn't see. <laughs> I'll give you A for trying and the, and the teacher E for blundering. All right. Now, um, since uh, the order is reversed... That is the order of Melchizedek and high priest is reversed in those two sections, those two verses. We have a chiastic frame. So the parallelism is a parallelism which forms a unit, describing a literary unit. In other words, we're framing 510 and 620 by the way the Greek text reverses those Clauses, those terms, high priest and order of Melchizedek. That makes this section, chapter 5, verse 10, through chapter 6, verse 20, and inclusio. All right, now, since this is a literary inclusio, or a structural unit in its own right, uh, I'm going to regard it as a narrative unit. In other words, I'm going to look at it as 
uh, a story unit and think about that for a moment. But before I do, I want you also to notice the little hook devices uh, that are present between 510 and 511. Now, for those of you that do have the New American Standard, you will notice that in verse 11 of chapter 5, there is a marginal note. The text says concerning him, and the marginal note has a capital H on him. So Mary Lou, since the capital H is on him in the margin, who are the New American Standard translators suggesting is the him? Christ. Okay. Now that would mean that the antecedent of that pronoun would go all the way back to verse 8, uh, where the Son of God is identified. All right. Now then, taking the um, text as it is in the uh, regular reading of the New American Standard, there's a small h on him uh, in the New American Standard. And that would then make the antecedent of the pronoun. Whom? Melchizedek. In fact, that's not a personal pronoun in the Greek. It's the relative pronoun. Concerning whom we have much to say. Now, the New American Standard is therefore raising a grammatical question. Who is the antecedent of the word whom or him in that uh, 11th verse? Here, our structural uh, uh, studies will help us solve this, this question. In other words, if there is a relationship between verse 10 and verse 11, if there is a hook device between verse 10 and verse 11, something or someone in verse 10 is also being identified in verse 11 in order to crochet the narrative together. Remember those les mots crochet that I pointed out last year these uh, chain-link devices that keep the narrative connected. We would solve this suggestion of a capital H on him in the New American Standard by saying they're wrong, and they're wrong because of the hook pattern. In other words, we're connecting the previous unit of this epistle that ends in verse 10 and names Melchizedek with a succeeding unit picking up on the him who had just been concluded, namely Melchizedek. So the small h is a proper translation, and the marginal capital H is an incorrect translation because of the structural hooking that the writer does throughout this epistle. In other words, he hooks his narrative together so that one item or one clause flows into the next narrative unit. Now, notice how he does this at the end of this larger frame, that is, we've identified 510 and 620 as a large frame. Now, notice verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. What do you see there? Remember, we're looking, Mary Lou, your head's nodding. Good for you. What do you see there? Okay, but notice that he hooks the two sections together again. In other words, when he concludes this one large uh, framed unit, 510 to 620, he repeats Melchizedek in the next unit. 
but he's going to begin in 7.1. In other words, Melchizedek is duplicated in 6.20 and 5.1, so we have the, so, the same hook pattern or hook device at the end of this unit as we had at the beginning, which would reinforce the identification of the hymn in 5.11 as being Melchizedek once again and not referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that's a minor point, but it's an interesting point that we can solve. In other words, the marginal suggestion can be dismissed. The capital H on him can be dismissed because of the author's pattern of using these hook devices. And so the hymn that he's speaking of in chapter 5, verse 11, is the Melchizedek whom he had just spoken of in chapter 5, verse 10. Now, I'm saying that this is a narrative unit. And that what we have here is a narrative paradigm. And I have suggested in uh, our previous studies of this epistle that the narrative motif in this epistle is the sojourn motif or the pilgrim motif. And you have a copy of an article in which I've expanded upon that. You can read that at your leisure. But as we've studied this epistle we pointed out in previous chapters that this pilgrim paradigm or pilgrim motif or sojourn motif is crucial to the way he constructs his epistle and what he's trying to say to the audience to whom he is writing. And what was that pilgrim pattern that he used, particularly in chapters 3 and 4? He used it in order to emphasize his uh, teaching, his instruction, his exhortations to this community, to the readers of this epistle. Do you remember what that pilgrim paradigm was? Yes, Israel in the desert as sojourners having come out of Egypt. All right, so it's the Exodus wilderness sojourn motif or paradigm as the pilgrim narrative uh, uh, structure of uh, at least part of this epistle. All right, now, how is this narrative or pilgrim paradigm apparent here in this section? That is 510 to 6.20. Is there a pilgrim featured in this unit? And if so, who is it? Try verse 13. There is Abraham, who is a pilgrim figure in the Old Testament. He is a sojourner. All right, so we have a narrative pilgrim character involved in this unit. In fact, casting back to last fall, I identified verses 4 to 8 of this sixth chapter as being based upon that wilderness sojourn paradigm. So there's another pilgrim motif in this unit besides Abraham. But let's uh, let's concentrate on Abraham for a moment. 
and ask another question, is there another, is there a second pilgrim in this section, in this unit? Try verse 20. No, it has to be Jesus who's called the forerunner. Now, the word forerunner in Greek here is very similar to the Greek word for pilgrim. So he is playing on the vocabulary that is synonyms that have to do with the character of pilgrimage or sojourning. And so now he's placing Abraham as a pilgrim character over against Jesus as a pilgrim character. Jesus being the forerunner of our pilgrimage. All right, now, that, that prods us to think about what other words we have used for pilgrimage or sojourners. Uh, what's the title of this epistle? Epistle to the Hebrews. Who's the first Hebrew? Abraham is the first Hebrew. And when is he first called Hebrew in his pilgrimage? Genesis 13. No. One chapter off. In the very chapter where Abraham meets Melchizedek. That is the chapter, chapter 14 of Genesis and the 13th verse of Genesis 14, where Abraham is called a Hebrew. All right. So we have Abraham in this unit in Hebrews six, the protological Hebrew, because he's the first Who's the eschatological Hebrew? Who is the last? It is Christ who is the eschatological Hebrew. That's the reason in 620 he's called the forerunner, meaning he's the pioneer, meaning that he is even prior to Abraham in terms of his own pilgrimage or Hebrew character. Right? Well, we're using Hebrew here as a synonym for sojourner. We think that this epistle is written to the sojourners of the end of the age, the sojourners of the age to come. That is the age that has come in Christ. Well, then, who are the semi-eschatological Hebrews? We are very good. Excellent. Yes, we are the ones between the first and the last. We are not perfectly part of the last, and we are beyond the first. So we are between the first and the last, so we're in this eschatological paradigm. We are the semi-eschatological pilgrims, and this epistle has been written to us, even as it was written to that audience to which the writer directed it. All right, now we can uh, change our uh, vocabulary, our nouns, and say, who is the protological pilgrim? 
Well, that is Abraham, who is the eschatological pilgrim. That is Christ, who are the semi-eschatological pilgrims. That is us. Okay, you see the pattern? All right, finally, who is the eschatological forerunner? Verse 20. Christ. Christ is the eschatological forerunner. So who's the protological forerunner? Abraham. Abraham. Abraham becomes the protological forerunner, and the semi-eschatological forerunners are us again. We find ourselves then folded into this drama. That is, the drama of this narrative. Now, here we're using forerunner in the sense of anticipatory sojourner, okay? Or the one who is the kind of pioneer and perfecter, as he will be called in chapter 12 of this epistle. And that pattern is imprinted upon Abraham, even as he is the first one, and it is also imprinted upon us as we are the ones that are in between the first and the last. Well... Looking now at uh, chapter 5, verse 11, and 6, verse 12, we take a look at the next structural part of this epistle, or this section. There's a smaller subunit here, and if you look at the word in 5.11 and the words of, of 6.12, let's see if you can come up with the frame that is present in those two verses. What does he say in verse 11 of chapter 5 that they have become? Dull. What does he say in chapter 6, verse 12? That, that they may not be dull. It's the same Greek word. I don't know why the New American Standard did not translate it the same way, but they didn't. Nonetheless, it is the very same word. So notice we have dull in 511, and then in parenthesis, not dull in 612. So here in this frame... We have a smaller frame within this larger frame between 5.10 and 6.20, which is antithetical. Antithetical meaning that I don't want you to be dull. You are dull, but I don't want you to be dull. Right now, how does he want them to move from being dull to not being dull? Notice after 5.11, or even in that 11th verse... He talks about them being, actually come down to verse 13. He talks about them as being babes, infants, okay? All right, so they are babes in their Christian walk. And he's encouraging them to, in verse 14, to what? To become mature, to grow up. 
All right, so the change from dull to not dull is a change from being a babe to being mature or growing up. And that's the reason that he puts in a kind of chiastic frame in verses 5 to 11, the babe to maturity paradigm or discussion, and in verses 9 to 12, the mature Christian character. We are convinced of better things of you. God will not forget your work. We desire that you show the same diligence that you may not be sluggish. In other words, he's saying that they need to move from being babes in verses 11, 5.11 to 6.3 to being mature and show the character of mature Christians, verses 9 to 12 of chapter 6. But in between, in verses 4 to 8, Notice what he sandwiches between the babes and the mature are the apostates. The apostates. Now, this sandwich is a sandwich that then features another antithesis. So you can label on your outline babes in 511.63, apostates 6, 4 to 8, and mature Christians 6, 9 to 12. But then opposite 4 to 8 and opposite 9 to 12, in verse 8 and in verse 11, you have two words that are duplicated again. Even as we had dull duplicated in 11 and 6, 12, 5.11 and 6.12, we have two words that appear in verse 8 and verse 11. Do you see them? Do you see it, Art? Which are, what is it? The end. the end, yes. In verse 8, their end is what? Cursing, yes, to be burned up with fire, thorns, and thistles. What is the end in verse 11? For assurance of hope, yes, which is, is that a cursing? No, that's a blessing. All right, so we have the antithetical frame in dull and not dull, 5.11 and 6.12, and we have another antithetical frame here in verse 8 and verse 11. The end in verse 8 is a curse. The end in verse 11 is a blessing. And so he sandwiches the apostates in order to underscore the antithesis or the opposition between the babes and those who are becoming mature in distinction from the apostates. And he makes it absolutely clear when he says the end of those apostates is the curse of fire and damnation. But the end of those mature babes, those babes who become mature, is the full assurance of salvation and hope. So he's patterning this uh, next unit, 511 to 6.12, in terms of duplicate or parallel antitheses. 
not that, but this, not that cursing, but this blessing, not that dullness of immature babes, but this sharpness of mature Christian thinking and conviction and belief. Any questions about uh, how he is making his argument based upon these patterns of similar duplication, even in terms of opposition or antithesis? Yes. Yes, he's the regenerated babe growing up to maturity. So as he says, as he commends them in that uh, that um, ninth verse, we are convinced of better things of you. He's convinced because he calls them beloved. But he does rebuke them up in chapter five because they are being content with the milk, so to speak. He wants them to grow up to that maturity. He wants their regeneration to mature, to show itself, to be demonstrated in their strong understanding, strong conviction, strong commitment, and godly life. All right, now that leaves the next section, 612 to 6.17. Now, moving down from what you've written there on your outline, not dull, opposite 6.12, we have two words that appear in that verse that are very similar to two words that appear in verse 17 of chapter 6. Notice the word promises in verse 12, reappears in verse 17, but it appears after another word in verse 12, the phrase inherit the promises, and in verse 17, heirs of the promises a word which is related to inherit. All right, so now this frame, which is bracketed by the terms inherit or heirs to the promises, is sandwiching someone else or someone we've already discussed. Who is the heir of the promises? Verse 13, Abraham. So, this very famous pilgrim character of Old Testament Jewish history, Old Testament patriarchal history. He is sandwiched by the frame of the writer as the heir of the promises, the one who inherits the promises. Now, how were those promises assured to Abraham? Pardon? He he received them by faith. How were they assured to him? 
by an oath. They were sworn to him. All right. The word oath doesn't appear until verse 16. But let's look at what word does appear in verse 13. The word swear does appear. And in fact, it is preceded by the adjective greater. The greater one swears. And if you look at verse 16, you will find that that phrase, the greater one swears, once again is parallel to what, to that phrase in verse 13. So here we have a frame within a frame. The larger frame in this unit is 612, 617, inherit the promises. How are the promises inherited? By the greater one who swore them, through the greater one who swore them, 613 and 616. And who received the four sworn promises of the inheritance from the greater one, Abraham, right in the middle in verse 13. So, the narrative uh, the narrative story of Abraham's sojourn is a narrative story in which he becomes the heir of the promises of God. Those concrete promises that God gave him by his own revelation. And those promises were not simply declared to him. Those promises were sworn to him. God swore an oath to him. He swore on the basis of his own greatness because he couldn't swear by anyone greater than himself. That's how sure the inheritance of the promises were to Abraham. Abraham then receives in his narrative pilgrimage, his sojourn, his Hebrew sojourn. He receives the sworn assurance of God's promised inheritance. And notice how our writer frames that, puts Abraham right at the center of that narrative drama. But in verses 17 through 20, he changes his structural paradigm. Scott, you may want to pick up the handouts at the back of the room. He changes his narrative paradigm. Before we go on to that, let me make sure that you've filled out things correctly. In other words, after 612, not dull, the two lines just below, still in 612, inherit promises. 613, the three lines, promise, greater, swear, between the arrows, Abraham. The line in 15, promise, lines up with promise up above. And 616, greater swear, lines up with greater swear in 13 above. Now in 16, we have a word that also reappears in 17. Anyone see it? Oath. Very good. In 17, we have a word that reappears in 18. So you want to write oath and oath underneath one another there in 16 and 17. What word appears in 17 and 18? Unchangeable. So you write unchangeable in that longer line there, 17 and 18, first line in opposite 18. 
And then you have a word in 18 that appears in 19. Hope is not in the Greek text because it is in italics, at least in the New American Standard, which means it's not in the original. What word is in both? It's a verb. It's easy to overlook it. It's the verb have. Have. This is very important because to have it is to possess it. So he duplicates have in 18 and 19. What does he duplicate in 19 and 20? Enter, enter. All right, now what is he doing? He'd been framing his section in smaller units. Now he changes his MO in verse 16. Now he concatenates. He links oath with oath, unchangeable with unchangeable, have with have, enter with enter, in order to chain link these last four verses. Why? Why does he change his structural pattern? He's not framing anything after verse 16, after verse 17, he's concatenating, he's chain linking, he's crocheting, he's duplicating the words. Let's start with 19 and 20. What's the duplicate word there? Again, Robert, enter, enter, and and. Why is why is he using that word? What's his appeal? What's the point? Mary Lou? No, he doesn't really say that. You're 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 thinking in the right direction. Who entered? And do you want to enter too? You see why he's concat? You see why he's hooking it together? He wants to hook you into it. He wants to draw you into the entering in within the veil. He wants you to have what is already held in that arena. He wants you to be drawn into the unchangeable God, to whom Abraham was drawn, but to whom his audience needs to be drawn. He wants you 
to treasure the very same sworn oath, sure promise that was sworn to Abraham. You see, he chain links the end of this in order to conclude this framing, not just by sandwiching you into the drama, but by knitting you into it. Knitting you into it. He wants to hook you in to the oath, to the immutable God, to the possession that you have in him, and grace upon grace, to entering within the veil. You come inside the veil with the one who has gone in for you. All right, now, this rather lengthy discussion of this structure is an attempt to show you not only the genius of the writer, but the story that he is telling in this unit. He's telling the story of the riches of Abraham's experience as one who went from being a babe to mature. He is the very antithesis of the apostates. In fact, he's the very antithesis of those who are content to be sluggish and dull in this community, be exhorting them to, like Abraham, grow up into the fullness of maturity. And that's where he uses this word in verse 12, be ye imitators. Imitators. Well, Weren't those in verses 4 to 6 of this epistle who tasted the heavenly gift? That is, they tasted the manna out of heaven. Weren't they imitators? Weren't they copycats? When somebody stepped off out of Egypt and into the open Red Sea, the dry bed of the Red Sea, didn't they copycat and imitate them and walk out too? And when somebody went out and picked up the manna, didn't they pick it up and eat it too? Weren't they imitators? Following the example of those that had eaten the manna, so they ate it too? You see, we're facing... An issue here of what he means by imitator. The Greek word that is used here is the Greek word from which we get the English word mime. Have you ever seen a mime? In Southern California, 20 years ago, there was a mime that made national television Because in San Diego Zoo, he would follow people around at the Sea World in San Diego. He would follow people around and he would imitate them while they weren't looking. And particularly in the big amphitheaters where the shows were being performed, he would follow a lady in who had her purse or someone who had a little dog on a string. And he would pretend to be just like them, copying them. Following their example. Now, of course, that mime was a brilliant craftsman. So famous that he got on national TV. He never said a word. 
Everything was done by expression and action and the way he moved. Never spoke. You couldn't get him to speak. You go up and try to entertain him and engage him in a dialogue. He wouldn't say anything. Was he copying behavior or was he living the life of the person he was following? You see what I'm asking? Do you see what the word mime means? Mime means somebody who's play acting. Mime means somebody who's playing a part. But are they that which they are copying? And so the issue here is not following Abraham's example imitating Abraham by being a sojourner. Remember, those who came out of Egypt and did not believe dropped dead in the wilderness. They were following Abraham's example and sojourning to the promised land until their unbelief barred them from God's everlasting rest. Is that what our author here is talking about when he's talking about imitation? Miming? No, he's not. He's talking about possession. He's talking not about following Abraham's example, being a copycat, but he's talking about possessing what Abraham possessed. That's what he's talking about. Do you want to be an imitator of Jesus and follow his example? No. You want to be an imitator of Jesus and possess what he possesses. Have what he has. Just following his example means you just go through the motions. You'd be a copycat. You can be a mime of Jesus. You'd be a mime of Abraham. You can be a mime of David or mime of any example that you want the name. But that is not what this writer is talking about. In fact, I don't think the Apostle Paul is talking about that when he uses his word. He is not asking us to look for good examples. He is pleading with us to possess what they have. To identify with the one with whom they identify. To participate in the drama in which they participate. To belong to the grace to which they belong. Now, I'm not going to get too upset when people talk about following examples because I'm going to cut them a lot of slack and say, okay, well, they just want something to aim at. But that's not really what our writer is doing here. He wants you to think more deeply than just aiming at it. He wants you to possess it, to enjoy it. To have it transform your whole nature. We want the mime not to be just copying. We want the mime to have the character of. Don't we? 
We want to have the mind of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We don't want to just imitate that or try to copycat that. We want to possess that. This is one of the tragedies of following example Christianity. You throw out the examples of Peter and Paul and the disciples and other great Christians down through the history of churches and follow their great example. What's the difference between you and the Roman Catholic Church, which adores them as saints and tries to follow their example? That's idolatry. No. It's possessing the life in Christ that they possess. That's what you want. It's having the spirit at work in your spirit, even as he was in theirs. So I'm making this difference, this uh, this substantive difference, with the understanding that I will cut slack for those that talk about following examples of other Christians. But I want you to understand there's something deeper here. And it's richer because it draws you into the life of Christ, not the example of Christ, the life of Christ. Enter in to where he is. You see his appeal at the end of this section? He wants to bring you inside the veil of heaven. He doesn't want you just to copy that. He wants you to possess it and enjoy it and be refreshed and assured and enriched by every treasure that is inside that veil at the feet of Jesus. Because that's why he went there. He went there for you to lavish his treasures upon you from inside the veil. Enter in to the possession, not the copycat imitation. Any questions about that or anything that it may have provoked? (laughs) Notice the uh, antitheses that I've listed there on the second page of your outline Uh, Over against imitation as duplication, it is not possession. Exemplification, it is not identification. Acting or aping out, it is not participation. The external facade versus the internal nature. Those are the antitheses that I think are underneath his use of this this word, this Greek word, mimetai. So that his paradigmatic era of imitation, acting out the example of others, showing the external facade, is the wilderness generation. That's the answer to that uh, statement there. The generation in the wilderness that imitated uh, sojourning by walking in the crowd, following others and their example, and then dying in unbelief in the desert. Okay, well, take your break.
then the veil of heaven's glory sanctuary at the feet of Jesus. That heavenly rest and journeys and pilgrimage is the glorious antithesis of another sojourn, a very different pilgrimage. A travelogue of a different order. I want you to listen to how Rudyard Kipling describes it in his poem, Boots, subtitled Infantry Columns. We're foot slog, 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 slogging over Africa. Foot, 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 slogging over Africa. Boots, 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 moving up and down again. There's no discharge in that war. Seven, six, eleven, five, nine and twenty mile today. Four, eleven, seventeen, thirty-two the day before. Boots, 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 moving up and down again. There's no discharge in that war. Don't, 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 don't look at what's in front of you. Boots, 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 moving up and down again. Men, 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 men go mad with watching them and there's no discharge in that war. I've marched six weeks in L and certify it is not Fire, devils, dark, or anything, but boots, 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 moving up and down again, and there's no discharge in that war. Now that phrase, there's no discharge in that war, is a direct quotation from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 8. And what Kipling has done here is use the pilgrimage or marching or traveling motif as the image of hell. Did you ever think of that? That in hell, there will be no rest. There will be no end of boots, 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 moving up and down again, eternal Motion, never rest or peace. The antithesis is broader than just the antithesis that we see within the structure of this epistle. The antithesis is an antithesis of another kind of pilgrimage. It is a pilgrimage where you never stop marching. You never stop traveling. You never reach journey's end. You never sit down to rest. There will be no sleep. No, Kipling's wrong when he says it's not devil's dark or anything. It is devil's dark and everything. Kipling wasn't an orthodox Christian, but you see how he captures, captures the hellish character of never resting sitting or stopping marching. If you don't know Kipling, 
well, watch Gunga Dean. All right, now on to verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7. Well, you haven't read the Just So stories to your grandchildren? How the rhinoceros got his skin and the elephant got his trunk by the great greasy Limpopo River and the whale got his throat? Ah, best beloved. You need to sit down and read those to your grandchildren. You need to sit down and read them to yourself. You have royal chuckle. Okay. I am a Kipling fan, in case you can't tell. (laughs) Chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. And we've already noted the hook word from the previous unit, which was the word Melchizedek. And now as you look at verses 1 and 10, Let's see if you can identify the duplicate words. Verses 1 and 10, two words that are repeated in each verse. Melchizedek, very good. And what else? Met, very good. Loretta, yes. Melchizedek Mech. Now notice the order of the words in verse 1. <clears throat> Melchizedek is first, so you'd write Melchizedek in that first blank line, and then the word met is second. What is the order in verse 10? It is the reverse, correct? In the Greek, it is the reverse, and in your English, it is the reverse. So, uh, at least in some of your English, it may be in the reverse. The point is, we once again have a narrative frame in which the same two words are used in reverse order in the original text. All right, so we have the larger framed unit of this, or the first framed unit of this chapter, First narrative unit, verses 1 to 10. Now, in verse 2, we also have two words which appear in verse 9. A tenth part, okay. A tithe, we'll we'll use the word tithe, which appears in some translations, okay. That appears in both verse 2 and verse 9. What other word appears in verse 2 and verse 9? Who gave the tithe? Abraham, and the word Abraham, the name Abraham appears in verse 2 and verse 9. Once again, notice that in verse 2, the tenth part comes from Abraham, 
and actually tithe is first in the Greek and Abraham is second. And in verse 9, Abraham is first and a tithe is second. So once again, we have this reverse pattern of the occurrence or order of the words. So we actually have two frames in verses 1 to 2, or verse 1 to 10 rather. Melchizedek framing 1 to 10, Abraham framing 2 to 9, and then sandwiched in between in verse 5 are... The sons of Levi, the sons of Levi. All right, now why do I note that phrase in this section, 1 to 10? Because I want you to look down at verse The sons of Levi over against the sons of Levi over against the son, the son of God. All right. So here is the key to this chapter. The key to this chapter is two frames, verses 1 to 10 and 11 to 28. We're not going to have time to go into the frame in 11 to 28 tonight, but notice what's happening. In 1 to 10, he is sandwiching the sons of Levi. In 11 to 28, he ends up with the Son of God. The antithesis between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of the Son of God. That's the issue here in this chapter. He structures the chapter in order to feature this antithetical uh, focus. Focus upon the uselessness of the priesthood of the sons of Levi, as he calls it in verse 18. And the eternal effectiveness, the perfection forever of the priesthood of the Son of God. All right, now, we have to ask ourselves, why is this an issue? He is contrasting the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood and cult with the forever priesthood of Christ, the Son of God. You and I might think this is a no-brainer. You don't even have to think about it. But he does. For a whole chapter, he thinks about it. Why does he have to think about it? Why does he have to write about it? Why does he have to make this point that not only is Melchizedek greater than Levi, but the Son of God is greater than Levi too, Jesus of Nazareth? Why does he have to do this? What is it about this church What is it about this audience to whom he is writing? What is it about this group of Christians to whom he is writing who raise a question about whether Jesus is good enough? Or Levi is better? 
Ben? All right, now, Ben has given a very interesting response that he is contradicting their confidence in the Levitical or Old Testament cult or priesthood, okay, because they are Jewish converts. But what if they aren't Jewish converts? What if they're converts from, what's the other alternative? What if they're pagan converts? What if these are Hellenistic, ethnic Hellenistic people, Greeks? Why is he then suggesting the superiority of Christ's priesthood to that of Levi to Greek or Gentile converts? Well, because there's, because really, the, if he properly uh, evangelizes these people, he must draw them into the Old Testament and show how all this was foreshadowed in the, all, all of what they now are asked to leave was foreshadowed throughout all history. But they want to go back to it. If you've got these Gentiles that want to go back to it, why would these Gentiles want to go back to it? <clears throat> it's easy to answer it if they are Jewish converts, isn't it? But what if they are Gentile converts? What if these are not <clears throat> Judaistic Christians? Hmm? What if they're not? What if they're Hellenistic Christians? Robert? I'm thinking that they're uh, trying to establish some roots, going back to the beginning to build a foundation. To build from. Why would they go back there? Why would they be attracted to going back to the priesthood of Levi? Because they would be searching for roots. Searching for roots? Yeah. But what is it <clears throat> what is it about the age of fulfillment that they don't like? What is it about Jesus entering into the heavenly tabernacle that they don't like? Obviously, if they want to go back to this Old Testament ritual, then they don't like the fact that Jesus is entered into the heavenly sanctuary. From, from, where, from where do we see that the Hellenistic Christians want to go back? I mean, I didn't get that impression from reading what I've read. Aha! All right, you see, I'm, I'm making a suggestion that you have to come to grips with not only they may be Jewish converts, but they also may be Hellenistic converts. And if they are, if they are, see, this is this is a discussion prodding you to think about why, if they are Hellenistic or Gentile converts, why would they be attracted to going back to the Old Testament ritual? You're saying their roots, Robert, but what roots are there that they would be attracted to? Well, if they're converts to Christianity from paganism, uh, they're coming in to it midstream. They have no roots. They do have roots, though, don't they? What, what, what are their cultic roots in paganism? Does paganism have cultic rituals? Yeah. Uh-huh. And what are those pagan rituals, those cultic rituals in paganism? 
Do they have priests? Yeah. Do they have sacrifices? Yes. Do they have pomp and circumstance? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, parading and, and, and performing and posturing and so on. You know, offering up, lifting up their hands, that kind of burning things up. Yeah. Do they have that? Do they have smells and bells? They have smells and bells, too. All right, so here we have these pagans coming out, the Gentile converts coming out of their pagan past who are attracted to what in Old Testament Aaronic or Levitical cultic ritual? Externals. It's externalism. Exactly. That's exactly right. The fact that they go through a tangible priest, somebody they can lay their hands on. They can see the offering. They can lay their hands on all the, the entrails, okay? They can get the incense, smelling into their, perfuming their nose, etc. all right? All of this externalism where they can lay hold of that stuff. Jesus within the veil. I can't touch Jesus. He's not tangible. I can't sense him in any real ritualistic way. So notice what he's doing here in chapter 7 as he is comparing the Old Testament Levitical ritual to uselessness. He has just talked about Jesus entering into the veil of heaven. Now, why wouldn't that be a no-brainer? Why would anybody want to go back to the Levitical ritual? Because like that generation in the wilderness, they were only externally going through the motions and they dropped dead in the wilderness because they didn't believe. And this is what he realizes is at stake. It doesn't make any difference whether they're Jewish converts or Gentile converts. They're stuck on ritualistic ceremony. That's what they're stuck on. They want form and substance in terms of going through religious motions. They want actions of standing up and sitting down. They want prayer books and have it all laid out. They want physical priests that they can talk to. They want people parading up and down aisles. That's what they want. And he is telling them that that is useless. It is useless because it is, to use Paul's phrase, the beggarly elements of the former age which have passed away. Why are you not content with the Christ of glory who has entered into the heavenly tabernacle so that you live and walk by the Spirit and your plain, simple church liturgy and worship style is because you commune through the Spirit, by means of the Word, and are nourished by the sacraments. It is not external ceremonial ritualism. That is useless. That is useless. That is the axe that your Reformed fathers and mothers laid to the root of Roman Catholicism. Because they saw it as directly contrary to what this epistle is talking about. You cannot go back to an earthly priest caste and ritual ceremonies which bring you in to some kind of state of acceptance with God through a human mediator or through human saint and saintly mediators. Male and female. 
You come into the presence of God by the Spirit. The living Spirit of Christ who communes with your spirit and draws you not into the inner sanctum of some cathedral or some confessional booth or some altar on the east side of your narthex. He draws you into heaven's eternal tabernacle. Now, this little exercise in thinking about why he's doing this, following on the steps of describing Christ entering into the heavenly tabernacle, focuses upon whether externalism in ceremonial ritual was at the heart of the problem of this congregation or this group of Christians to whom he's writing. And whether they are Jewish and going back to ritualistic Judaism, or whether they are pagan and going back to ritualistic paganism, the same issue applies. That those pagans would be going back to the roots of externalism in the Bible, not in their pagan past. They would simply transfer their externalism in their pagan uh, pagan cults to Old Testament ritualism and ceremonialism. And so we could possibly have Gentiles rediscovering Judaism and holding on to it and wanting its externalism because they didn't like the intangibility and internalism of Christianity. And he's warning them. He's warning them. That if they do that, they are going to a dead end. It is a cul-de-sac. It is a useless dead end. Now, I'm not dogmatic about this observation. I'm not saying I'm absolutely right about it or wrong. The majority view when you read the epistle of Hebrews is, oh, these people are being attracted because they're Jewish converts to go back to their roots, to go back to their childhood, to what they were raised with. That's the typical thing you get in studies in Hebrews, commentaries, etc. Well, I'm not necessarily convinced because I think it plays both ways for pagans as well as Jews. So it could fit either audience and still make the same point. Paganism was external and ritualistic as well as Judaism. All right. Now, Christ's priesthood, according to this unit, actually the whole chapter, but it begins here in verses 1 to 10 does not arise from Levi and Aaron, from the sons of Levi, verse 5. That priesthood, as I've said several times, is useless. Notice verse 18. Christ's priesthood arises from... Mm. Good for you, Ben. (laughs) But hold that. In this section, in this unit, Christ's priesthood arises from Melchizedek. All right, so what we have here is that Melchizedek, on the line to Christ, is a type 
of Jesus Christ. And Christ is the antitype. So as we look at the line of history, okay, this is the line of history. We can call it redemptive history. On the line of history, Melchizedek is a type and Christ is the anti-type. Looks very straightforward. Not too difficult to figure out. But from what does Melchizedek's priesthood arise? Christ's priesthood is the antitype of Melchizedek's, but what is the origin of Melchizedek's priesthood? The priest of the Most High God? Okay. Is that what our writer says? The law is all here. The law? The law? No, not yet. Okay. His love to get here in. From what does Melchizedek's priesthood arise? God? How about the Son of God's priesthood? From verse 3, the Son of God. Yes. Now, in this case, who is the type? No, Christ is the type. Christ is the type, or the Son of God is the type. This is amazing, isn't it? He is the type. But you don't get that on the line of history. We can't, we can't get a straight line on the line of history for that. Melchizedek is the anti-type. We've reversed the positions between the two figures, but what is the vector? What is the, uh, what, what arrow are we going to put here? We can't put a horizontal arrow here. It is a vertical arrow. It is an eschatological arrow. It is an arrow of the Son of God himself being the type from which Melchizedek has been pressed as the anti-type. Now, look what happens here. If we lay these out alongside of one another... Perfect mirror chiasm. The reflection of Christ in Melchizedek and Melchizedek reflecting the Son of God. Robert? Yeah, I've heard it argued some years ago that Melchizedek is actually Christophany. You wouldn't argue that then. What does verse 3 say? Let's take a look at verse 3. Robert raises the question... Is Melchizedek a Christophany? What's a Christophany, Loretta? Mary Lou, what's a Christophany? Frank, what's a Christophany? Art? Kay? It's Jesus Christ before he came. <laughs> That's good. I'll take that. Okay. It's a appearance, phane. P-H-A-N-Y in this case, 
It's an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. Okay? So, is Melchizedek an appearance of Christ? Is he a Christophany? Is he Christ manifesting himself 2,000 years before he was born in Bethlehem? Is that what our author is saying? Frank? Frank is nodding his head. All right, now, now uh, all right, let's, let's have a vote. We're getting into election season here. Okay, so let's have a vote. Okay? How many agree that Melchizedek is the Son of God? Come on, Frank, you gotta put, you have the courage of your conviction, you gotta put your hand up. Alright, two, one, two, buckle my shoe. Alright, that's all, that's all we've got. Alright, how many, okay, what do you think? I think he's just a, a human being. And what makes you say that? In the text. Um. I want you to know you're right. So I'm sorry, Frank and Terry, you're outvoted. By the people that didn't even vote. But, but I, I want to know, I want Kay to tell me why she's right. You can help her, Loretta. Excellent. Excellent. Like, notice the language. He is like the Son of God. He is not the Son of God himself. But he himself has been made like him because the Son of God is the type. He is the anti-type. That word, like, means he is not identical to. Yes, Robert's right. There are many, and still many, who think that Melchizedek is the Son of God in a pre-incarnate form. And many great theologians down through the history of church, even Calvinistic theologians, they're dead wrong because they didn't pay attention to the text. Read the book. doesn't say he is the son of God. That's not an identity. That's not a verb to be there. He says he is like him, similar, less than he is. And as we'll notice from the structure of this chapter when we get to it, we're going to see that he structures this chapter in such a way that you'll not only see that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, but Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Okay, that third verse is crucial exegetically to, uh, to dismissing this notion that Melchizedek is a theophany or Christophany or an appearance of God uh, before the incarnation. But before we uh, look at the story of Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis 14 for a moment, we want to, we want to observe one more thing. This is the historical paradigm. This is the eschatological paradigm. But there's another paradigm here. And what did you say a a, a while ago, Ben, about his priesthood? He is a priest who has... Uh, No beginning, no end. No, not Melchizedek, Jesus. He has an indestructible, indissoluble life. You did. I thought you did say that. Oh well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm giving you false credit. Whoever said it. Okay. He has an endless life. He has an endless life. 
Now, we will think about the Son of God more than in this eschatological intrusion or reflection or penetration. Namely, that he reveals himself through Melchizedek as his antitype. This is not only eschatological, this is ontological. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that something very profound is happening here when Christ reflects himself in Melchizedek. This is the ontology of the being. The very being of the Son of God is revealing himself through Melchizedek's priesthood. Now, Melchizedek could never be the ontological Son of God. He is a human, as Kay so uh, clearly articulated. But what is being what is being uh, shown in the self-revelation of the Son of God through the priesthood of Melchizedek is the higher character of that everlasting priesthood that belongs to the Lord Jesus as God the Son. In other words, it is not just history that uh, recapitulates itself here. It is not just eschatology that recapitulates itself here. It is ontology that displays itself here, that is, that the very being of God himself manifests himself through Melchizedek to Abraham, and Abraham meets the Son of God in Melchizedek. No, he doesn't meet the very essence of the Son of God in Melchizedek, but he meets what Melchizedek himself is the antitype of. This is the reason that Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day. Because he saw me. Where did he see the Son of God? He saw him reflected or imaged in Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. When we take it to this stage, you see, we're talking about the nature of, of the eternal, metaphysical, absolute, God of gods, very God of very God, begotten, not made, etc., etc. We're talking about him revealing himself to Abraham through a priestly mediator, namely Melchizedek, who is wrapped up in the atmosphere of eternity himself because he has neither father nor mother nor beginning of days nor end of life. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't born or he didn't die. It just is with respect to his priesthood. There is no birth or death of his priestly line. There's no father or mother of his priestly order. He is just there relative to his role in the history of redemption. But he's there because he has this mysterious reflection of the character of eternity about him without being eternal himself. Can you imagine what it meant for Abraham to be blessed by this man? You imagine what Abraham must have experienced when Melchizedek came out to him and blessed him 
Blessed be Abraham. And then blessed Melchizedek's God. Blessed be the God Most High. Notice what Melchizedek is saying. He's acknowledging that God Most High is his God as he blesses Abraham in the name of that God Most High. So he is not God himself. He can't be. Nor can he be the son of God himself. So the ontological dimension is beyond even Melchizedek, though it is dimly reflected in it. We are drawn into the absolute endless life of the ontic son of God through this drama. Ben. How would Abraham have recognized Melchizedek to be that by faith. There's something in this disclosure, in their encounter in Genesis 14, which assures Abraham that if we can use the language of Jacob, I have been with God. Remember that when Abraham, by faith, goes out seeking that country which is a better country. He's doing it before the face of Melchizedek, who is in the country that you would think was the resting place for his soul. But it is not, because Melchizedek is drawing him higher, even as God is drawing him higher and does not allow him to own any property, any piece of real estate in Canaan. Always, always God drawing him upward, upward, upward to himself, even in Melchizedek, to himself, to the God Most High. Through a glass darkly, not seeing it as clearly as we do, but nonetheless seeing it afar off and possessing it by faith. When we get to that 11th chapter, we're going to see the wonderful power of the faith in these individuals, what they grasped about the invisible world and the invisible God and the invisible Son of God in that world, even though they didn't know his name was Jesus of Nazareth. Because, as Calvinists, we believe, don't we, that everybody since Adam and Eve has been saved by Jesus Christ by faith through grace, don't we? We believe that, that there's no difference in people being saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of who saves them and how he saves them, by faith through grace. The only difference is how much they know and how much they've seen. And we have been so privileged to see so much more and to know so much more than they do, but they knew it. They grasped it. Their faith put them in possession of it. They weren't just mime imitators, you see. They were possessors. As Van Til would say, the blessed possessors, they possess this blessing from afar off. All right, now, the story of Melchizedek and Abraham in Genesis 14 is structured in terms of the invasion of the four kings against the five. That's the invasion of four Mesopotamian kings against five Transjordanian kings. And they conquer the Transjordanian and southern Palestinian 
region for 12 years. Then comes an insurrection in which those five Transjordanian kings rebel in the 13th year of that domination and gain their independence. The retaliation is the four kings of Mesopotamia marching against the rebellious five kings of the Transjordan and looting and defeating them and seizing, capturing Lot and carrying him off to the north or back towards Mesopotamia. The humiliation is Abraham's attack of those four kings retreating with Lot as their captive in the region of Dan and recapturing Lot and destroying the army of those four kings. And the benediction is Melchizedek's blessing to Abraham on his return from that campaign of rescue and blessing. Now, let's think about what's happening in this drama. It is more than a story of rescue and return. It is a narrative which occurs in Canaan of Palestine. Canaan of Palestine, this land bridge between the nations, between the continents, between Africa and Asia, between Egypt and Mesopotamia. In Canaan of Palestine, the protological Hebrew meets the protological Gentile priest of righteousness and peace. Think of what is going on in this land in between the national powers of the world. This Hebrew will be the father of a nation, of a multitude as sand on the shore, as stars in the heavens, a great cloud of believing witnesses from Father Abraham of every continent and every tribe and tongue under heaven, Hebrew and Gentile. Think of what is happening here in the encounter between Hebrew Abraham and Gentile Melchizedek. Blessed be the God of Abraham, God of Hebrew and Gentile alike. Indeed, blessed be the God of Melchizedek, God of Gentile and Hebrew alike. Melchizedek, Abraham, Abraham, Melchizedek, a chiastic narrative paradigm, reciprocal, relational, complete mirror reflection. The universal and the particular. The particular and the universal. The particular predestination and election of Abraham, as Gerhardus Voss notes, is a means to a universalistic end. From this particularly elect Hebrew comes the worldwide blessing of God Most High to the nations. The Gentiles shall reap the blessings of this elect Hebrew. Universal blessings, worldwide benediction from the seed of this particular elect Hebrew. 
elect from every nation because of this elect father of a nation. Comes this initial benediction from the priestly mediator of God most high, this non-Hebrew priest, this Gentile intercessor. He blesses not only the God of Abraham, but he blesses his own God. Abraham's God is Melchizedek's God. The Hebrews' God is the Gentiles' God. God Most High places his benediction on the Hebrew and on the Gentile, on the itinerant and on the resident, on the pilgrim in Canaan and on the inhabitant of Salem, on the elect sojourner and on the equally elect non-sojourner, on the elect Hebrew and on the equally elect Gentile, on Abraham elect out of the Gentiles and on Melchizedek elect Gentile. And this theater of election, benediction, and interaction is that piece of real estate, that land between great nations, that land between Asia and Africa, that tiny land where Hebrew and Gentile crisscross. This theater of election for elect Hebrew and elect Gentile, this geographical space where God Most High discloses himself. It is into this space between the nations, this tiny point of crisscross interface where elect Hebrew and elect Gentile meet jointly under the benediction of God Most High. It is in this land of God's self-disclosure that benediction flows forth once and for all to Hebrew and Gentile alike, to Abraham's seed and to Melchizedek's heirs. For the land is only a means to an end. It is the space of divine self-disclosure, but it is not the place of divine face-to-face fruition. The land is only unto the revelation. As the revelation moves from Abraham to Abraham's seed to Melchizedek's benediction, It is God himself who is all to elect Hebrew and elect Gentile and in all elect Hebrews and elect Gentiles. The interface of persons, Abraham and Melchizedek, displays the interface of races, Hebrew and Gentile, portrays the interface of location, Canaan as the keystone of the nations. And so the interface of the Son of God with Abraham and Melchizedek. The interface of the Son of God with Hebrew and Gentile. The interface of the Son of God with Canaan and the nations. The interface of heaven with earth. An interface which transcends Abraham and Melchizedek. A heavenly interface which transcends Hebrew and Gentile, an interface which transcends Canaan and the nations, a transcendent self-disclosure of God Most High in His Son, 
Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, prototype of Melchizedek, Hebrew born for Gentile sons and daughters, citizen of neither Canaan nor the nations, resident of a location that surpasses Canaan and all nations, son of God at the right hand of the Most High in heaven, the place and space of divine face-to-face fruition. We are compelled by the unfolding of Abraham's story, the story of Abraham's seed. We are compelled to see the ongoing interface of God with Hebrew and Gentile. An ongoing, unfolding interface climaxed in one who himself interfaces Jew and Gentile, who himself is both pilgrim and citizen both offerer and priest, both traveler in Canaan and resident of heaven. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the perfection. The narrative come to its end, to its purpose, to its goal, to its telos. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the perfection of the Abraham narrative, the Melchizedek narrative, the Hebrew narrative, the Gentile narrative, the Canaan narrative, the nation's narrative, Christ's narrative is the paradigm that completes and perfects the previous unfolding drama of the history of redemption from Abraham to Melchizedek to Abraham's seed and Melchizedek's Lord. Look at the drama of what's happening in Genesis 14 when Abraham meets Melchizedek. One believer greets another believer. Any questions or comments? Right, next week we'll pick apart a little bit of this uh, seventh chapter and go on with the structure. So uh, bring your outlines again. Um, actually, I might actually uh, reprint them. So in any event, we'll uh, go on with some detailed remarks on verses 1 to 10 and then go on to look at the structure of the rest of the chapter.